Thomas Powers is professor of political science at Carthage College in Wisconsin. His new book is American Multiculturalism and the Anti-Discrimination Regime, The Challenge to Liberal Pluralism. That's our topic today. Welcome, Professor Powers. Thank you very much for having me. Now, you identify anti-discrimination as the core idea or motivation behind the drastic changes in our political system in recent years. Why anti-discrimination instead of, say, political correctness or identity politics? Yeah, I think that uh, the civil rights revolution, and I equate anti-discrimination with the civil rights politics or the civil rights revolution, is the foundation of identity politics and, the, and it's the, the, the cause of political correctness. Absolutely. Uh, identity in particular is a central term in uh, multicultural education, and it's it's something that you can can trace out as a sort of an intellectual history behind the word identity, and a lot of people have focused on that. And uh, but the reason that we are fixated with the word identity, for example, is because it plays a crucial role in civil rights politics because it characterizes what is at stake for folks who take this very, very seriously, and, and I focus on multicultural education, a guy named James Banks has a whole theory of identity going back to the 1970s, in which he says identity helps us see what discrimination does, where it harms people, and also where the solution is. He uses the term the psychological project because he wants to recreate American identity around the problem of discrimination to try to fixate on, on a new understanding of identity that will fight discrimination, uh, that will help people who are victims of discrimination protect their identities, and then to change the identities of the majority who uh, understand themselves in, in some kind of sick relationship, according to him, uh, around racism and, and other forms of discrimination. So I think identity politics, political correctness, I could say something about political correctness, if you like, or cancel culture and all those things. All of that comes directly out of the law. There are at least 15 or 16 laws that restrict free speech in the name of fighting discrimination. And some of them are incredibly powerful, and most of them are fairly obscure. We don't have European-style hate speech laws that are very powerful in the United States, but we have an incredibly powerful uh, speech restriction regime, and that's, I think, usually what we mean by political correctness. So, yeah, I think all of that is absolutely caused by a change in our political order that we do not fully uh, understand. And that's an interesting part of the puzzle as well, why we don't see this. Right. Uh, you raise an interesting paradox. Anti-discrimination, you say, is, quote, absolutely unquestioned. Yet it is also, quote, surrounded by controversy on every side. How do those things go together? Yeah, well, I think left and right in America both agree that discrimination, racism, you know, uh, racial discrimination that we had in this country before the 1960s, no one who could ever get a elected to political office uh, would ever say that we should go back to the world before 1964, where you can discriminate in hiring or in a hotel, you know, giving somebody a hotel room or, or letting them into your business on the basis of race. And the same goes for gender and other forms of discrimination. So everybody agrees about that. But what we disagree about is what the commitment to fighting discrimination means. And then you've got two huge debates uh, that have emerged since the 1960s. Right away, there was a debate over affirmative action. So the left wants to say, look, 
discrimination is inequality. You know, whenever we see inequality between these groups, that is discrimination. And the right's like, no, absolutely not. That's not discrimination. That's a problem, maybe, that we need to deal with. This is basically the affirmative action debate. Uh, and that's been around since the very beginning. In the last 10 years or so, a second debate uh, around the meaning of anti-discrimination has emerged because of what we today call wokeness, right? So, so wokeness, I would say, is basically the product of a bunch of legal change that happened in the 1990s. Um, you know, the, the product of which is DEI bureaucracy, uh, diversity training in the workplace, what I call corrective firing. All of that stuff happened because first, the idea of discrimination was expanded to include stereotypes, harassment and what we call the hostile work environment or the hostile educational environment. Uh, and then employers were told, you are responsible for all this stuff. And if you don't do something about it, you're gonna get sued, you know, these huge lawsuits. And then the government also said, EEOC, federal courts said, by the way, the way that you're gonna prevent this if you wanna protect yourself from lawsuits is diversity training and taking disciplinary measures against your employees. So we privatized, uh, you know, enforcement of anti-discrimination in a very aggressive way. We sort of turned the public-private divide on its head, you could say, because, you know, liberalism has a divide between public and private, which this, which this retains, but then it hands over political enforcement to the private sector. So we're in this situation where, in a way, it's more forceful than it would be, you know, if there were uh, anti-discrimination police wearing, you know, special uniforms and hats or whatever, running around enforcing these laws, I think they would be much less powerful because people would be like, hey, you know, that's that's something we don't do around here. But when the private employer does it, people kind of think, well, this is just right. It's just the way things are. And we don't see the, the political underpinning of it. So that has created a ton of controversies in the last 10 years, partly because, uh, you know, the gay marriage decision in 2013, 2015, uh, the Me Too movement in 2017, I think the election of Donald Trump also sort of magnified all of these things. People got very upset. Um, and then uh, transgender rights, Black Lives Matter movement have, have magnified all these civil rights claims on top of a new and much more aggressive uh, uh, political enforcement mechanism. And so that has pushed all sorts of controversies about cancel culture, about the extent of DEI training in the workplace, about people being fired for this sort of thing. And again, we don't fully recognize how much this is rooted in the law, in the political changes, because it's all been privatized. So it, there are a number of controversies here, you know, a long list one could generate. Uh, but to repeat the premise, everybody admits we have to fight discrimination. No, you know, DeSantis, Donald Trump, nobody would say we don't care about discrimination in this country. Everybody, even even like, well, I'm not gonna, you know, the Proud Boys in a way, you know, even these guys, they go out of their way to show we're not anti, you know, we're not homophobic, we're not racist. So it is uh, a remarkable uh, combination. Well, when you say that uh, uh, it got privatized, what that really means is that the private sphere was no longer shielded from forms of regulation and, and control. And that really speaks to something that you bring up repeatedly in the book, and that is that the, this regime today really marks the failure of liberalism, at least classical liberalism, which 
to which was very important, the private sphere. Leave me alone. Let me do what I want. Uh, is You say that this liberalism really failed in the case of race, in, in yes. particularly. H how so? Okay, so, I mean, that might be a little unfair to liberalism, and I do try to qualify that at the end of the, the chapter where I take that up, but it is just true that before the 1960s, liberalism allowed discrimination in the private sphere, right? And so uh, when it came time to really do something about segregation and, and race discrimination in, in America, people thought, well, we're going to have to go into the private sector because employment discrimination, discrimination in what we call public accommodations, you know, hotels, restaurants, theaters, and so on, and public or, uh, sorry, housing uh, in neighborhoods. That's all the private sphere. And that was the, a very important part of segregation and, and racism in America. And so it just seemed, I guess, in the 1960s, obvious that that needed to happen. It was controversial at the time, like Barry Goldwater ran on that, right? He said, this is a mistake. But very few, uh, you know, once the, the change uh, happened, even Barry Goldwater said, oh, I was wrong about that. Uh, and um, so the change did come. It did seem obvious at the time, but I think what we didn't know, right? So no one knew what was coming. The architects of the 1964 Civil Rights Act did not see our world today. But I think what happened is when we shifted from this public-private understanding of, of the politics of groups, uh, which had worked, by the way, in the case of religion, right? So religious uh, groups had been managed in this way and very successfully, I think you could say. Race, the race problem in America was too big to handle that. And I don't think you can blame liberalism for that. I think, and in fact, the opposite, right? So that, that would be a terrible injustice. I don't mean to say that, but it is just true that liberalism was bound up in the, uh, the problem of discrimination. And so the solution was thought to necessitate moving into the private sphere in an aggressive way. But that had uh, amazing consequences because it has eroded the distinction between public-private in a number of ways. Uh, other conservatives who write about this focus on the right of association for some reason. Christopher Caldwell has got a very well-regarded book, um, The Age of Entitlement, which I, I, I think is very highly of. But, but he focuses on the right of association as the dividing line. I think it's much, much bigger than that. I mean, obviously, free speech is part of it. Uh, the right of association is also part of it, but so too is the basic idea of that that government doesn't involve itself in, in morals. I think that's actually the, the real center of things uh, for me on the public-private divide. Liberalism was more realistic, and one of the reasons to separate public and private was so that people were left free to sort out these controversial questions of justice and religion uh, on their own. And the government now has decided, you know, we have decided that the government needs to be involved in these questions. And that has really transformed things because we are now teaching a civic morality around the civil rights revolution. And in a way, again, everyone agrees that at some level, that's an important thing to do, but how far it goes, that's where left and right disagree. And the left is willing to really run with it. And I think what you see here in a way is the kind of rebirth of an older understanding of politics. You know, if you go, read your Aristotle, you know, Aristotle will say, of course, the regime is going to be shaping the hearts and minds and souls of citizens. It, it, and of course, politics is about justice. And the civil rights revolution, folks, they're like, yes, absolutely. This is about, go ahead. Well, well my, my, my question is, I mean, it has become so vast, so controlling 
entered into life. I mean, you talked about, uh, uh, what, 15 laws or, or, or so on, on the yeah. rest of the federal level and then all these smaller regulations. Oh, that's, just, that's just the laws that restrict free speech, right? So. And, and, and so the question is, you know, as this was exploding, the, the regime, uh, why didn't we get more resistance to this? Was it that the civil rights movement just, just had too much moral authority for anyone to say, whoa? Yeah, that's a very important question. I think partly the answer you give is a good one, that people were morally impressed with civil rights. Now, this is partly historically contingent. Uh, this happened at the end of World War II, after the United States had just gotten done finishing the fighting a war against Nazism and, you know, brutal uh, race, you know, beyond race discrimination, right? So, so I think that is very important to explain why people thought it was absolutely necessary to take the kinds of actions, uh, the, the sort of measures that we did take in the 1960s. Uh, but I also think that uh, we, to some degree, you could say that there's something attractive. I, I, I don't really emphasize this a lot in the book, but, but some people have argued, you know, liberal democracy is in a way, the effectual truth of that is bourgeois, you know, rule and good law and order and solid virtues of uh, hard work and, uh, you know, take care of yourself and your family and so on. And there's, that's, that's very impressive achievement in world history, in my opinion, but it's also lacking uh, in a certain kind of moral high-mindedness. And I, I do think that people are attracted to the civil rights revolution because of morality. And liberalism has tried to shy away. You know, legislating morality is wrong, according to the liberal tradition, right? And civil rights is all about le legislating morality. And I do think that people find it uh, attractive. You know, the term virtue signaling is mainly uh, a term of criticism, but it also reflects something uh, true, right? Something real there that people do want to say, I, I have these opinions. You know, my, my, I, uh, my parents, I dedicated the book to my parents. They were civil rights activists, uh, white Midwesterners who went south, you know, and my parents are not that far left, but, but boy, for them and for me too, growing up, the civil rights revolution just, uh, ha holds a real place in our hearts. Uh, and, and our being, you know, being a racist, being a sexist, uh, you know, that really is troubling to, to Americans, and it is moral. And that is something new in American politics, that we are putting questions of justice at the center of our, our political understanding of things. You, you know, you, you actually say that, uh, you know, the left always wants to create a new man, right? Uh, you, you actually say that, that as, these, uh, as this morality, these laws get implemented by group uh, organizations like the EEOC, which is very powerful, of course, that we have ended up with a, quote, new civic sensibility. Uh, it is a different kind of, as you put it, democratic personality. It's getting way deep down into, into our hearts, not just our, our, our speech. How would you describe this 21st century new American personality? Well, I mean, to begin with, I would say justice and, and questions of morality are, are very important uh, to it. Uh, you know, the language that I focus on in my uh, second to last chapter of the book is about the new morality. And so questions of identity, inclusion, recognition, respect, equity, social justice, that new language is a moral language 
Uh, it's also political psychology, but but I think it's mostly a new kind of morality. And and Americans take, I mean, people, folks on the left, especially, I think, you know, there is a divide always, right? So conservatives are nervous about all this. When they hear this language, they understand it, but it makes them nervous. But folks on the left who really embrace it, uh, they they adopt the, the, the principles of, of the new morality. And so I think that's very important. One thing that I come back to over and over again in the book is the sort of, uh, I guess, punitive or corrective justice uh, emphasis that I see in anti-discrimination. And this is concerning to me that uh, I do think that there is, you know, the basic question of, of discrimination is a claim of injustice, right? That someone has done me an injustice and that the government needs to help me rectify the situation. And I do think that that is, a, there is a kind of pervasive uh, effect of that on the the spirit of morality that is associated with the civil rights regime. And so I do think that people who are shaped by this morality are sensitive. You know, we talk about sensitivity training. Again, that's a term that comes right out of the law, by the way. Uh, but, you know, so we're sensitive to injustice. We're very wary. And multicultural education, for instance, since the 1970s, has been teaching victim groups to be wary. You know, to to form coalitions with other groups, to be suspicious. Uh, James A. Banks, the sort of the center of my book, he's not a very well-known theorist, but he's amazingly revealing of the new understanding of politics that comes out of the civil rights revolution, more so than anybody, in my opinion, right? More than Martin Luther King. And he says, you know, that we have to train the minority one way and the majority another way. And it is very much uh, a kind of group conflict premise and underlying it there are accusations of injustice and you know self-protection and so on it is a politics of friends and enemies that our young people are being trained in you know when i read your pages on on banks and the multicultural education layout there and actually the the ambition of it the ideas of radical change of systemic reform there, there's one phrase quote teachers reconceptualizing their view of America. You know, I read this and I can't help saying, who the hell do these people think they are? <laughs> you know, how much arrogance well, does one need to envision such drastic changes for the rest of us? Right. Okay. Well, yes. I mean, I have mixed feelings about James A. Banks. He's very important to me in the book. I think some readers of the book actually have thought that I am more sympathetic with Banks than I am. But I do think he's so revealing that I, and he's not a postmodernist. That for me is crucial. Uh, he is simply the voice of the civil rights revolution. And you can see in his thinking the amazing ambition, as you point out, of what he's calling for, the changes. Uh, so where does he get off? I mean, I guess I would say behind him lies the entire civil rights revolution. And he thinks that this is a new understanding of democracy that we need to get on board with. And so he makes very little reference to the liberal democratic tradition. Here yeah, and he, there. He, he actually you, you, you say that in the 70s, he actually worried that if deep adjustments aren't made in America's political system and civic sphere, that we are going to get serious chaos in in the country. What 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 was the worry in in, in the nineteen in in the early seventies? Was that a real worry for a lot of people? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I, the reason I included that, I don't want to emphasize banks as uh, you know 
political radical in that sense. He's he is the doctoral supervisor of uh, Robin DiAngelo, the author of White Fragility, by the way. So, I mean, so there is a radical side to Banks for sure, but he's also somebody who appeals to the middle of America uh, to get these radical ideas across. That's the great contribution of Banks uh, is that he is a radical, but he's speaking to the whole country and he's been very influential. I mean, he multicultural education is basically law. It's now diversity accreditation standards uh, for teacher education. But, but before that, it was multicultural education. That goes back to the early 1970s. And so Banks is probably the most important multicultural education theorist uh, writing. But, uh, you know, I, I would say the radicalism of Banks is more in his new vision of anti-discrimination democracy than any specific call, you know, for chaos or something like that. I mean, that's part of it. It's an element of his thought. But I would say it's actually a minor element from point, you know, at points, Banks you know, he expresses a kind of anger or something like that. But I and I, I do want to include it to show that it's there. But I, I, I wouldn't emphasize that above all because his ideas are radical enough on their own. You know, like his call for reconceptualizing not just America, but democracy, the West, you know, the whole world in a way is 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 his ambition. Um, and he shows that. I mean, I have sections of the chapter there on his his moral understanding his political psychology, his understanding of group politics, because multiculturalism is a form of pluralism for banks. And it is a very different understanding of group politics, uh, very different from the liberal tradition, you know, separation of church and state, interest group pluralism, all of that. That's that's deep in American uh, history. But but banks is like, no, we have a new understanding of group politics. We don't need that old liberal thing. I mean, he doesn't emphasize the difference between liberalism. But but once you start looking for it, you, you see it. Big time. You know, in its current form, uh, now that it has been allied with postmodernism, and you tell the story of uh, the, the multicultural education being allied with postmodernism in the 80s and, and 90s, is kind of a strange mix in, in a way because postmodernism in, in the 70s, it was, it was irreverent, it was playful, it was ironic toward, toward history and, and tradition, whereas the... the the identity politicians are so deadly earnest. They're such humorless creatures. But uh, apart from that, one, one element about today's version is, and you, 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 you discuss this at length, is the alignment of conservatism with racism. The, the accusatory bullying tactics, they're pretty bad, aren't they? Uh, you mean the accusation from the left that, that conservatives are racist? Right, right, right. So, so right, yeah. Uh, the the um, uh, sort of whiteness is is the. Uh, I, let me back up for a minute and say a little bit about postmodernism and multiculturalism in that merger. Uh, I am arguing there uh, a little bit uh, with pe people who want to emphasize intellectual history to talk about wokeness or political correctness or identity. I think that politics really needs to be central, and this story in the 1990s, as you said, uh, what you see is multicultural education exists. It is the voice of the civil rights revolution. It's already up and running by the end of the 80s for sure. And then all of a sudden, postmodernism, uh, people from critical pedagogy, uh, which is also in the world of teacher education, they merge with multiculturalism. And Banks, he resists that. He, he stays out of it. But almost everybody else goes over. And that's a very fascinating fact because it proves 
that wokeness and all of that does not derive from postmodernism. I really, or critical race theory, you know, uh, people today are saying cultural Marxism, neo-Marxism, Marcuse. I don't buy that ultimately. I mean, it, there's, there's obviously intellectual history plays a role. I, I devote more than the majority of the book to ideas. So I'm not against talking about intellectual history, but I, I really insist that politics is the basis of our intellectual history. Now, the upshot, as you rightly point out, of the merger uh, of postmodernism and multiculturalism, what, I, I, the, what my formula is, postmodernism is the handmaiden of the civil rights revolution. And, you know, in, in that merger, the civil rights revolution becomes much worse. It becomes unhinged from reason and uh, very, very angry. And the practical effect of uh, the merger is this fixation with whiteness. And it's a rhetorical strategy above all. It's just changing the subject. So we're not going to talk about civil rights. We're not going to talk about the civil rights revolution. We're not going to talk about progress that's been made in America. We're going to talk about whites and white racism and white racists and whiteness as a category. And it is a very deliberate structure. The postmodernists don't believe in whiteness because they have a critique of everything general, right? So they'll they'll say, oh, whiteness doesn't exist as a category. Race is, you know, a uh, kind of fictitious category, all identity, they have a whole critique of identity, but then they have to contradict themselves constantly in order to serve their political master, their political master being the the civil rights revolution or the left interpretation of it. And so, yeah, uh, whiteness, the whole rhetoric of whiteness is very ugly. It ends up being, and I show this with, you know, lots of quotations. I mean, they, they don't ultimately shy away from saying whites are a problem. They are you know, racist and whites are beyond that. I mean, it's it's worse. It's demonizing the white race. And so this is, to me, very troubling that this is, in a way, the product of something that comes out of the civil rights revolution once you add postmodernism to it. I, want, I do want to say, Banks does not talk that way, right? So Banks is, I think, uh, I don't agree with Banks on many things, right? But But he is a more sober... Uh, and that's one of the reasons he's actually more effective, too, is that he's a, a more sober voice than the postmodernists. They they discredit themselves, it seems to me, simply in, in making the arguments that they do. Very good. The book is American Multiculturalism and the Anti-Discrimination Regime, The Challenge to Liberal Pluralism. Professor Powers, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me.